Philippians 4, 2 through 3. I entreat you, Odia, as I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So uh, tell, tell me if you've, if you've seen this movie before, right? This, 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 this movie. Uh, you got uh, character number one, who's kind of doing just fine, right? Until he meets character number two. And then there's some type of drama, some type of friction between them that this conflict sparks. Maybe it's because of uh, just, just their just difference. Maybe one of them offends the other. Maybe it's one-sided. Maybe it's two-sided. Maybe it's just a, a clash of personalities. This conflict erupts, ensues, and it continues on. But then at one point, at one point in the plot lines, uh, you see these two characters are sort of forced to come together and to realize that their squabble is meaningless in light of the bigger story that they're suddenly a part of. And it forces them to sort of work it all out so that they can move forward together to accomplish this greater mission that they're now called to. How many of you guys have seen that movie? Right? Now, chances are you've thought of this movie, and there's probably 20 different options for that movie in this room, right? Because it's a common plot line. We see it in so many of our great stories. I mean, if anyone outside of the Bible knows how to tell a great story that sort of resonates with us, it's Disney, right? And this is one of the common plot points that you find in their stories, right? Once upon a time, you got two characters that don't get along for some reason. They're forced to work it out on their way to happily ever after. We saw this in, in Toy Story, right? Andy's faithful favorite Woody all of a sudden has these new securities that bubble up, exposed by the shiny new Buzz Lightyear. In the movie Up, how many of you guys have seen Up? Yeah. You got Russell cute little boy scout, annoys the heck out of old man Carl. We saw this with Sully and Mike Wazowski, with Moana and Maui. We see it in C.S. Lewis's Narnia with the Pevensey children in the first half. The list goes on. You got two different parties that have to work together through their differences in order to move forward to the end. Why do all the great storytellers keep repeating this plot point? Why does this plot point resonate with us so well? They wouldn't have it in these stories if it didn't sell, right? I think it's because the tragedy of conflict is so wired into our human existence, and we all know that few things can so hurt and resentment, stifle our joy, slow us from moving forward together than an unresolved conflict. And so we resonate with that story. And Paul, the apostle who wrote the great letter to the Philippians, is now in the home stretch of his letter. He's wrapping up his letter to this church that he loves, and he makes this one last call for unity to this church in light of a very specific conflict that he just wants to see squashed. And so we're going to look at this conflict first dealing with just the reality that conflict exists, the reality of conflict. 
Regardless of the setting, regardless of the group, no group is immune to conflict. No church is immune to conflict. Read verse 1 and 2 with me. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, we read this last week, my brothers, my sisters, whom I love and long for. Remember, Paul's in prison when he's writing for this. He misses his friends. He says he longs for them. He calls them my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so here we have Paul addressing this church that he clearly loves. Clearly loves. I mean, loves just saturates verse 1. He tells them to stand firm in the Lord, this church that he loves. And then he gives us one way that we can stand firm, one way that the rubber meets the road in our standing with the Lord. And he talks about resolving conflict. We see it in verse 2. He says, I entreat, I plead, I entreat with Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now what's going on in these verses? What's going on? There's, there's two women by the name of Euodia and Syntyche in the church who seem to be at odds with each other. All right? That's the first thing I want you to see in these verses is just the reality that conflict just happens regardless of the group, even in the healthy churches like this one, like the church in Philippi. I mean, some of us have this assumption that if we're a real church, then we're not going to have conflict. If we're real Christians, then we'll never have to work through drama and conflict. But that's just not true. That's not true. The great church in Philippi was a healthy church. They had a good thing going. Of all the New Testament letters the Apostle Paul wrote, this one is the most personal in the way that he writes it. You ever notice how some people like change their voice when they're talking to like their significant other, right? Hey, how's your day? And, and you hear it for the first time and you're looking at them like, who are you, <laughs> right? Where where'd this voice come from? In the same way, Paul's letters have different voices, different tones, depending on his relationship with that church. You got to see his letters to the Corinthians. He's like, man, you guys got some issues we got to deal with. To the Galatians, he's like, did you learn anything that I taught you guys? To the Romans, he uses all this like formal language, but to Philippi. To the Philippian church, this letter that we're walking through this year, he writes very personally, very affectionately. These are his people. Even right here in verse 1, so many layers of love in these words. And this isn't the first time that he's gushed like this about them. Back in chapter 1, he says, he says I'm, I'm thankful to God every time I think about you. Right? He's like, I hold you in my heart. He says, this church is Paul's people. His hashtag familia. They mean so much to him. Yet at this point, at this point in the history of this particular church, there's, there's a conflict going on. What started out as a personal conflict between two people has quickly become a divisive issue that, that kind of rippled throughout the whole church. Now, it's helpful to have some context here. These two women that Paul calls out, Euodia and Syntyche, they're, they're leaders in the church. So they are women leaders in the church. Paul calls them out by name. 
And you need to understand how sort of awkward that is, right? Like, he never does this. He never calls out people by name in, his, in these letters. you got to remember that the, the, this letter will be read out loud in a church. This is the first century, so there's no way for Paul to send an email to, like, members at philippianchurch.org, right? Paul was in prison at the time for proclaiming the gospel, the good news of, that Jesus is the risen king in a land when people were only allowed to say that Caesar was king. And so Paul's been in prison. He's been away from this church for a while. He planted this church about 10 to 11 years prior. He's been away from them for a while, and he sends this letter, this affectionate personal lender, back to them, to Philippi, with a guy named Epaphroditus. And when Epaphroditus makes the 800-mile trek back to Philippi with this letter in his hand from Paul, you got to imagine that the people, the people who also loved Paul back with great affection would have gone bananas over this letter. Epaphroditus would have been going up and down the streets telling all the Christians, Paul wrote a letter. I've got it right here. All the pastors in the church of Philippi would have said, get everyone together, get communion ready, fire up the worship team. And then they start reading this letter from Paul. Starts with his prayers for them, his love for them, his heart for them, his encouragements. He gives them some few reminders of things he's taught them along the way. And then, in what we know as chapter 4, Paul tells them to stand firm in the Lord. And then chapter 4, verse 2, he drops some names, calls out two women, and says, Euodia, Syntyche, girls, you've got to work this thing out. Imagine the thick awkwardness you would have felt in that room, right? Like, Euodia was probably sitting on one side, right? Syntyche was probably sitting all over on the other side, and then those words from Paul are read out loud to the whole congregation, I entreat, I beseech, I plead with you, Euodia, I plead with you, Syntyche, work this out, come to an agreement in the Lord. Now, why did he call them out? Like, does that seem rude, right? Like, why did he call them out like that? It's because these women were very well known in the church, They were respected key leaders. In verse 3, Paul says that he labored side by side with them in the gospel. And so they were known by Paul. They were known in the congregation. And that means that everyone in the pews probably knew about this conflict that they've got going on. Among leaders in the church, unity is so important because people follow leaders, right? And if the leaders aren't unified, then the people aren't unified. And so the division between these two key leaders, these two women, is actually bigger than just them. It's trickled down into the people. And so in some sense, Paul naming them is is helpful to the church. It's necessary for the church for them to just squash this as soon as possible. And so with that in mind, uh, I wrote down some names. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Now, I mean, what's the conflict over in this text? We, we really don't know, and it, honestly, it doesn't matter. Because if it did matter, it would be in the Scriptures. Probably didn't have, was something big like a doctrinal dispute or a big moral issue between one of them, because we see that Paul has no problem at all addressing those head-on in other places. 
The cause of conflict was, wasn't, the, the cause of the conflict wasn't so much a big issue for him. It was the result of this particular conflict. It was the bitterness that bubbled up. The resentment that reached out. That was spreading like a cancer in this congregation. Over this little squabble. So for King's Cross in the 21st century, big takeaway for us is, is we need to be realistic with our expectations. All right? Don't you be surprised when conflict arises between Christians. No group is immune from that. No church is immune from that. Don't be surprised by it. But also, as we'll see, we shouldn't be shaken by it. Don't be surprised by conflict in our churches, but don't be shaken by it either. Work to resolve it. Conflict is uncomfortable, right? Amen? Conflict is uncomfortable. That's why we, we, we tend to sort of tend to do one of two things in conflict. We, we, we tend to avoid it like the plague, or we'll buckle down and appease the other person, right? I'll do that in my marriage sometimes. Like, I'd rather avoid hard conversations than have to work through the difficulties of conflict. Some of you are like, Alyssa's perfect. What issues do you have? (laughs) Issues with me. (laughs) But ask, do you run from conflict or do you work through it? Do you run from conflict or do you work through it? Paul wants us to work through it. He wants us to work through it. And so we're going to pull some key insights from the way he deals with these women on how we're to resolve our conflict today. Resolving our conflict. First, we see from Paul, if you want to resolve conflict in a healthy and holy manner, then you need to first let love lead the way. Let love lead the way. We see this in verse 1. Read it again. When Paul says, My brothers, my sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's like Paul saying, Man, I love you guys. No, I really, 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 really love you guys. And all of you whom I love with a deep brotherly love, stand firm in the Lord. And Euodia and Syntyche sisters, Fight for unity. Fight to agree in the Lord. Fight for unity in the Lord. There's no doubt in this verse that Paul has love for these people. So let love lead you to fight for unity. Notice that when love fuels his relationship with this church, Paul is actually all the more eager to deal with the conflict. He's not afraid to go where it's uncomfortable and awkward. He doesn't put it off. He doesn't hold resentment. He isn't passive, aggressive. He just goes right for it, even calling them out by name. Our tendency is to run from conflict. Don't like these people? No worries. Join a new home group. Is that one person, you know, that's kind of hard to deal with? That's all right. You can find a new friend. Find another marriage. Our tendency is to run because we don't know how to deal with conflict, how to work through things, how to love over and over and over, how to forgive over and over and over, to see the good and redeemable and fellow image bearers of God. Now, 
To be clear, I do want to add a special note here because I know that some people here in this room are coming from past hurts, from maybe a church or a relationship, a friend, a significant other that was abusive. And this call to love and reconcile was used as sort of a weapon to enable abusers and control those that are vulnerable. When you look at the whole counsel of Scripture, what we see is that any call to unity that requires a compromise to truth and justice or a compromise to moral purity is worth nothing. That's not true unity. That's a counterfeit unity. Remember, Paul's not addressing a serious moral dilemma, or Paul would have named it. It's more likely like a secondary or tertiary issue, like a disagreement over like a leadership decision or a fancy football league. And so Paul tells them both, agree in the Lord. Euodia, Sintiki, agree in the Lord. Second, all things considered, Paul doesn't take sides, and he encourages them both to make the first move, to make the first move toward reconciliation. See, conflicts don't heal themselves, right? Conflicts don't heal themselves. Someone has to make the first move. And here, Paul expects both of these women as servant leaders in the church to take initiative. He tells them both. He entreats both of them find agreement in the Lord. Show the congregation, he's telling them, what Christian humility looks like. Show the congregation, show those under your leadership, those that you are serving by leadership, set an example for them. What does humility look like? What does Christian reconciliation look like? See, the first cause of conflict is always pride. So if you want resolution, if you want reconciliation, you got to get rid of that pride. The first cause of conflict is always pride, always self-centeredness. Pride says, no, I don't want to make the first move. Right? They're more in the wrong, so they should come to me first. That's what pride says. That's what pride says. Most of our conflict has nothing to do with what someone else did or what someone else decided. The heart of most of our conflict really has to do with our proud hearts and what they selfishly desire. That's not my wisdom. That's what James says. Read James 4.1. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? When the other person doesn't have their act together? <laughs> no, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That hits the core, doesn't it? You see, being the first to make a move towards reconciliation, like, that's hard. It's not easy, but it's right. It's honoring to God. It makes much of the gospel. And if James is right about the true cause of our quarrels, then, then I need to be willing to pray for the other person, to make the first move, to own my contribution to the problem. Third, we need to have the same mind in the Lord. Have the same mind in the Lord. Where do we see that? Verse 2, when he says, agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. That word agree is the Greek phroneo. Phroneo, which means to have the same mind in every sense. 
to have the same mind, he says, in the Lord, which means in the manner of Jesus. So in other words, since you belong to Christ, Paul's saying, have the mind of Christ in how you treat one another. Right? You, you, did you track with that? If, if, you, if you belong to Christ, and if you want to pursue reconciliation with another party, then you need to have the mind of Christ to whom you belong and how you treat the other person. This is a throwback to what he wrote in Philippians chapter 2 when he told his, this church to imitate the humility of Jesus. He says, follow the example of Jesus who left his throne in heaven, made himself nothing, taking the form of a human servant, only to die on a cross in our place for our sins. Agree in the Lord means have the same mind as that Christ. Doesn't say you got to be best friends. Doesn't say you got to agree on every single issue. He says, tells them to agree in the Lord. I want you to ask right now, is there a Euodia or Syntyche in my life that I need to work things out with? Is there a person that I'm at odds with currently that I, I need to work things out with? A believer in Christ that you need to be of the same mind with in Christ. Paul says, if you want holy and healthy reconciliation, you need to have the same mind in the Lord. Fourth, get a mediator if necessary. Get a mediator if necessary. You see, sometimes you need an outside party to step in and help hear both sides to sort out what went wrong. If you're a parent, you're like, amen, right? That's my life right now. I know all about that. From the time my two oldest kids could talk, that was suddenly a part of our job description. Mediator. Here's where Paul says that. He says it in verse 3 now. He says, yes, I also ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Now, we don't know who he's referring to when he says true companion. Likely it's Epaphroditus who brought the letter back, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that sometimes... We need outside help. Sometimes we need someone with an objective vantage point who will do whatever it takes to get to a truthful and Christ-honoring resolution. Read what Proverbs 18, 18 says, 18:17. It says that the one who states his face case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. You see, sometimes the person who's the loudest, the quickest, has the most influence, seems to everyone to be in the right. But then when you get an outside perspective in to step in and assess the situation, you realize there's a whole other side to this. Mediators can help sort through that. Fifth, Paul says, plug into the local church. This is implied here by the way that he, he writes this letter. Plug into a local church. Reconciliation is a community project. It's a community project. Paul's assuming that we're in a, that, without, that every single one of us, that this church in Philippi and that us here at King's Cross, he's assuming that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you're in real Christian community where it's safe to be called out and not feel judged. Where you're fully known in all your mess, but still deeply loved. 
I had a sweet encounter with someone this week, uh, uh, kind of on this point. A friend who kind of gently called me out on ways that I, I'd sort of just dropped the ball on some things. And you know what? When I had this conversation with, with, with him, like I, I, I truly felt loved and cared for. Like I love that I can have authentic community like that with other followers of Jesus. I don't, I don't have to front because in Jesus, I'm already fully known in all my mess and loved by him in spite of it. Now, please don't interpret that as Pastor Chris feels loved when we call him out. <laughs> I mean, in some sense I do, but I just don't want you to email me all at once. Actually, you can email me at Oscar Navarro. At, I'm just kidding. It takes a whole church, a whole church, to pursue this kind of unity that Paul calls us to. It takes the whole church. That's why Paul isn't shy about including their names. He doesn't write Euodia and Syntyche personal letters. He writes a letter to the church. He calls in a mediator from the church. As a church, we are not disengaged spectators, right? That's what we go through. That's what Oscar was talking about earlier and what we go through in church membership. Like as a local church, we are not to be consumers. We're not to be disengaged spectators. We're not to be mere consumers. We're to be a family. In a family, in the fullest sense of that word, walks through their stuff together. We work things out. We press through the discomfort and the awkwardness all for the glory of God. Conflict will happen, but we have a responsibility, we know, to work through it together because we're of one mind in the Lord. Maybe you can ask right now, do, do, is there, do you need someone's help to work things out in a conflict? Do you have a conflict with someone where maybe like you've tried to work it out with them? It's not getting anywhere. And so you're like, man, maybe we need help from a Christian brother or sister, a mediator. Or maybe, are you the objective third party that needs to help someone else work things out? You see this beef going on that they don't even know is there. And you want to help them come to an agreement in the Lord. Lastly, Paul tells them, if you want healthy and holy reconciliation, remember that your unity is part of a bigger story. This is where we get the fuel for biblical unity and reconciliation. You need to grasp the idea that your unity is part of a bigger story. He says in, in verse 3, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know what the book of life is? It's the invite list of heaven. It's the invite list with all the names of the elect of God. And Paul points out that this small squabble between these two women is just a tiny blip on the grander scale of the gospel story. He points out their past service in the gospel alongside him, but he also points out their future destination as citizens of heaven. He says, sisters, remember where you're from, what we did together, and remember where you're going. 
you are citizens of heaven heading to glory. And if your mind is occupied by that grand reality, if your mind is humbled between before that grand story, then man, there is no room for pettiness in your heart. Lift up your eyes, Paul says, and see the big picture. This is Paul's way of calling them to think not what's just best for them, not just what's best for their feelings, not just what's best for the pastor, but what's best for the brand, but to think about what's best for the gospel, that our pursuit of unity is for the community of saints, for the kingdom of God, the example that we set to the families and children around us. It's not about me. It's not about my comfort level. My pursuit of unity is about the reputation of Christ. It's about our labors in the gospel pushing forward to eternity. There's an old Reformed missionary by the name of Leslie Newbiggin. He, he served as a missionary to India for about 40 years. I was reminded of him this week at this, this thing that I went to. And, and uh, Newbiggin, he, he brought some great insights uh, in all his writings into the way that we, that we view like living on mission today. He talked about how even if you live in the cul-de-sac in a first world country, you still need to think like a missionary discerning the idols of your culture just like he did when he was in, in India. He moved back to the UK and he's like, man, I got to do the same work to reach the people here with the gospel. And in one of his books, he talks about how true gospel-centered community doesn't just declare the gospel with our mouths, but displays the gospel in our community. True gospel-centered community doesn't just declare the gospel with our mouths, but displays it with our community. Because it's one thing to have outsiders hear, hear you say, Jesus is Lord. But it's something more to have them also look in and say, oh, that's what they mean by that. See how they love each other. See how they work through things together. No one else works through things that way. See the way they serve each other. That's what they mean by Jesus is Lord. A friend of mine, Brad McCracken, he's an editor with uh, the Gospel Coalition. He wrote a really helpful book a couple years ago called Uncomfortable. Just kind of honestly owning the fact that much of Christianity, especially the way we do community, is uncomfortable and awkward. And in his book, Uncomfortable, he, he has this insightful quote. He says, A unified church is one of the strongest evidences of the truth of the gospel. When the rest of the world can't seem to agree on anything or bear to be around people who are different, a church where natural enemies become siblings in Christ is a powerful alternative. Maybe ask yourself right now, does the way that we work through conflict display the power of the gospel? Does the way we wrestle through conflict display to our unbelieving neighbors 
the beauty and power of the gospel. When Paul says, these women are co-laborers in the gospel with me, their names are in the book of life, he's reaching into the fact that, that they are marked by Christ. They are going to heaven. They are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. He's bringing the bigger story of Jesus, the bigger story of the gospel into focus. He's bringing eternity and judgment into the here and now. When he references the book of life, he is pastoring us. He is drawing our attention to the reality that every moment, every moment in the life of a church is leading toward eternity toward God, toward light, toward hope, toward grace, toward truth, toward infinity, and beyond. <laughs> How does Toy Story end? How does Toy Story end? You got Woody and Buzz sitting side by side on Andy's bed on Christmas morning. How does the movie Up end? Carl an old man, or old man Carl and Russell sitting side by side on the road, enjoying some ice cream together. You know what turned their conflict around? What turned their conflict into camaraderie? It was a common mission and a picture of the bigger story that they could be a part of. The ability to zoom out from their petty differences and see the greater purposes that they now shared together. How will history end for those of us who are in Christ? Sitting side by side at the wedding supper of the Lamb. Amen? One day, Paul says, Euodia, Sintiki, and all the saints of the Lord throughout history will be seated together at his table, at Christ's table, together as one family, one familia. Will you pursue reconciliation today with those you'll be sitting at that table with then? Will you pursue reconciliation today for those you will be sitting side by side with then? Will you help your brothers and sisters fight for that too as a mediator like Paul and his true companion did? Will you fight to see that our community displays the gospel to an unbelieving world? Everyone whose name is written in that book of life all those who labored in the gospel will get a seat at that table in eternity. Do you know how you get your name in that book? How do you get your name in that book? Do you know how to get the power to resolve conflict in the present with those you'll sit with in eternity? The same way you get your name in the book of life. You need a mediator. We need a mediator. We've sinned against our just and holy maker and God.
And our relationship with him was divided. And so Jesus came as a man to live without sin, to die in our place, paying the penalty of that sin and rising to bring us the power of the resurrection for our lives and for our relationships for all eternity. And if we trust, if we trust in him, we get a seat side by side at the table because there's one mediator between God and man, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.